the last time I saw you was probably at this point two years ago. Uh, would that that would be twenty eighteen? Yeah, two years ago. And that was in Chicago. Chicago went the at the new old hungry brain. At the new old hungry brain. Yeah, I came out and saw. Um, uh, what was, was it like the ten year anniversary or something? No, something that like that. I don't know. That. Been before that, I think you were just doing a show at Hungry Brain. Yeah, probably. I just came out and saw it. I forget who was on. So do was I. Meredith Echelon? <laughs> yeah, I think you were on that show with Meredith, though. Oh, what's that? I thought you were on that show. It doesn't matter. It's been a while. No, I think I was. Now I recall. No, yeah, it was Meredith and I was there. Yep. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, uh, so the reason why I wanted to talk to you this week is for no good reasons, just very, very sad reasons. Uh, the Hungry Brain is yeah. near and dear to my heart. Hungry Brain, I think, was also close to you. And you played there on my show and solo and for Everything is Terrible probably a dozen times, if not more. And yeah, I loved, loved, loved seeing you perform live. And you would occasionally sing for your supper with one particular bartender. And it was wonderful. And it really reminded me of an album that was on the jukebox because it was the John Prine debut album. And I know that you love John Prine probably more than me. And I, th- did you perform for him or open for him? I, I know that you at least got to meet John Prine. I got to meet him. I, um, I did, I never did perform for him or open for him. Um, but I did get to meet him. Uh, a friend of mine was, uh, a touring member of a band that was playing with John Prine. It was a double bill. And I saw that the band that the, there was a show booked at Red Rocks. So I was like, Oh my God, I've never seen John Prine. And um, my really good buddy will probably be able to give me a backstage pass and I will be able to kindly lurk and meet John Prine. So I hatched this whole plan because I love John Prine. I want to, you know, just meet him and, shake his hand and and chat with him for a little bit. So that's what I did. And it was awesome to see him play uh, at Red Rocks in a beautiful day. Um, And I got to sit in like the artist section, which is right in the middle of the kind of like, you know, it's kind of like stadium seating there. The seats are kind of graded up. Um, So the artist seating um, is right in the middle of that. So you're eye to eye at the same level as the performer, as a stage very close. So I remember just like sitting there, listening to John Prine in the middle of the mountains on this beautiful day and just being like, Oh man, this is, I'm so glad I did this. And now I'm even more glad that I did that and, and made it happen and took a special trip and, um, and asked for a big favor from my really good friend, Paul to Figlio. So thanks Paul. What um, was the band Paul was in at the time? Um, he was touring with the Avid brothers who are large, large folk rock act. Um, so he played, organ and piano for them on the road for five or six years or something like that. I like that your Chicago accent came through the most clear when you were talking about the Avid brothers. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think anytime that you uh, describe, uh, anytime that you describe something like that, or, or maybe it's particular, maybe it's just when you describe something uh, specifically, uh, you know, like you're writing a bureaucratic civic report on something, a yes. folk rock act. I think that's that's more what it is than the, the the specific subject here. More about the approach to describing something. So you got to see John Prine at one of America's best venues, and then you got to hang out with John Prine. You had a you had a little conversation with John Prine. 
we yeah we we got to chat so i got also got to give props to my friend laura goldhammer who is an incredible musician and animator in denver colorado um she was uh kind of like my i guess my concierge for that trip she was like a really big uh cornerstone to it i, I called her up i was like hey laura uh do you want to go see john prine at red rocks and and try to meet him and she was like oh hell yeah because she's a great adventure buddy and super charismatic so it was really her kind of um social wherewithal where she started chatting up um john prine's bass player who is super nice dude and uh we were making friends with them uh backstage and he got a nice read on us and we were kind of like, Hey, would it be, you know, like, could we like just meet John Prine? And he's like, he's like, yeah, man, probably I'll, I'll like, we're going to be coming through here to, you know, he's going to, he's coming to pick up the keys so he can go get a hot dog. It's a big John Prine thing. John Prine loves hot dogs. Um, so he was coming to pick up the car keys from the tour manager so he could drive and get a hot dog. And his bass player was like, yeah, so he's going to come through here in about 15 minutes. If you just hang tight, I'm happy to introduce you guys. You guys are real sweet, real nice. Um, so he did. Um, so he did. Uh, John Prine came walking through and, um, uh, and we just kind of, we just kind of got to talk with him. I was talking about um, uh, growing up uh, on the, uh, west side of Chicago, like Western suburbs kind of in that, you know, he's from Maywood and I grew up in the city by, you know, Oak Park Avenue, Harlem, uh, Belmont. So a little bit North, but about as far West. And, uh, he was like, oh yeah, he used to ride my, he used to ride my bike up there. And I was like, oh man, John Prine rides his bike. Um, and, uh, we got to chat about, uh, hot dogs and Italian beefs and how much he loves a good beef. Um, and I think, yeah, like, I don't know if it's cause he grew up in the Chicagoland area, but he is just, he loves hot dogs. <laughs> so I feel like there's an affinity there. Are you um, a vegetarian? Me? Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. For some reason I thought you were a vegan or a vegetarian. Uh, maybe it's just the company I keep. Maybe that's probably it. Uh, <laughs> uh, where's your favorite place to get a hot dog right now? Right now? Well, I would say since I'm quarantined at my mom's house on the northwest side, my favorite hot dog is probably the Dog Stop on West Belmont Avenue. I know they've, the Dog Stop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so they've they've stayed open uh, throughout this uh, pandemic, and the uh, uh, drive throughs open, so that's great. Have you ever had a Gene and Jude's hot dog? Surprisingly, no. Do you know what I'm um, talking about? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's on River Road, even closer to Maywood, where yeah, John exactly. Prine is from. It's pretty much equidistant between Maywood and where you are right now. Yeah, it's pretty much. Yeah, it is kind of right in the middle. Um, I think I'm probably in the next day or two. I'm probably going to take a bike ride down to Maywood and kind of just go by John Prine's childhood home, which is still there. Mm -hmm. Um and uh and just try to find some of the spots there's this great video on youtube um from the late 70s of john prine driving around maywood in a classic car like some old car and he's behind the driver's seat uh and he's just talking about um the parts of maywood that have inspired songs that he's remembered uh like bruised orange um he drives past the scene of bruised orange that song that begins um 
um, you know, about the, the altar boy being hit by a train, um, for walking, uh, with his back turned. Um, and that actually happened. He was, John Prine was walking to his job one morning to shovel snow at the church. And, uh, there was a big commotion and, uh, and, uh, uh, altar boy had been hit by a train. Um, and, and so that's the kind of the beginning of that song, bruised orange, which has like the best like Zen Buddhist philosophical chorus ever. You know, you can stare out the window, get madder and madder, throw your arms in the air and say, what does it matter? But it don't do good, no good to get angry. So help me. I know. Um, and it's just, you know, getting wrapped up in your own chain of sorrow. He just kind of like that song is just kind of about the chain of suffering that we can put ourselves in. If we are just like mired in our own bitterness and, and sadness and don't try to transcend beyond it. Your stuff is a lot in common with Prine when you when you talk about uh, bitterness and transcendence because um, it's very easy to compare the two of you. You're both you you both love like the working class hero type of narrative, and you're, you're incredibly proud to be from where you're from. Prine was equally proud to be where he was from, and maybe even more importantly, where his parents were from. Uh, it's, he passed away in Nashville and not Maywood uh, for a reason. But the difference is you are a lot younger than John Prine. Uh, you and I are peers. Uh, do you feel like you have anyone in your world that fills that role that's a peer? Um, as far um, – man, I would have to say the Kentucky Torches getting okay. passed to Tyler Childers um, as far as like um, – as far as someone who is kind of uh, – writing songs um with that specific viewpoint of the cosmic everyday mm -hmm. um finding the depth in um in these everyday uh human situations and kind of like using uh using the words to kind of buff away the dirt and show the um and show the true nature of what's going on there uh, and leading you to find that yourself just by telling these simple stories. Like, of course I would like, I'd love to just like pat myself on the back and be like, Oh, my songs are like that. And my writing is like that. Um, but I, I, you know, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to be like, Oh yeah, this is how I'm, I'm trying to get all self, uh, uh, self unaware and cosmic. And you just have to do it. You know, you have to write things that are, meaningful to you but as far as a peer who's kind of filling that role mm -hmm. um with that specific artistic voice and who has actually like you know been mentored by john prine and and passed on um that i think tyler children do you think you're going to be a, a musician until you until you pass away yeah i'll definitely um definitely be that like as i was saying you're it being a musician, I guess, is what what you've asked. Will I be a musician Correct. until I die? Yes, of course. Well, um, not of course, not of course, because so many, so many, so many people just stop or they realize it was a hobby or it wasn't meant to be. You're only a, one of the handful of people I know that I, I knew for over a decade that I still think is going for it, whatever that it might be. It doesn't necessarily mean fame and fortune, but definitely like Oh, this sounds really hoity-toity, but like following the artistic muse and having a purpose and having a purpose-driven life and, and, and the arts. And I think that with the pandemic and with the passing of arguably the two of the most important uh, working-class songwriters from the 70s in the same week, Bill Withers and John Prine, it yeah. seems harder than ever 
more difficult than ever to to stay on that true artist path. Yeah, and I guess um, I guess it would help to clarify what you mean by by being a musician. You know, like um, um, music is a is a deeply human expression that's been with us forever. People have posited that human beings learn to sing before they learn to talk. So it's deeply human. What I think you're getting at with your question is, will I pursue um, an artistic career of some part of some of uh, pursue an artistic career of some kind in music and through music until I die till the end of my life? Um, Yeah. I think that the answer is an absolute yes. Um, And what that means is changing, uh, especially in the last four weeks, we've seen the entire industry just disappear. Um, all of the work that we've taken for granted is, is gone like that. It like there's, there's no job postings down at the union hall. Um, you know, there's some, there's just a lot of, it's a fallout. Um, so and and this is at a point when the musical landscape as far as like having a career and distributing records and touring and playing shows and and being a professional performer um as well as a professional recording artist that has drastically changed you know i was thinking about this today you know the story about steve goodman opening for chris christopherson in chicago for a week and the whole week he's like you got to come to the earl old town you got to see my friend john prime you got to see Prine. You got to do it. So he has to physically bring him there. He physically brings Chris Christopherson to the club and they sit down and, and it's after the set and John plays for him and then plays for him some more. Um, that doesn't happen now. Someone texts you a link to a YouTube video and you just see it and you make whatever inferences you make. Hear me and out. You cast, Hear me out. Hear me out. You, completely you know where you're going there. with this. I completely agree. This might be one of very few silver linings of this entire thing. Number one, I think the biggest silver lining of the global pandemic is it will be good for the globe in terms of global warming. So that I think is good. And the other might be, I think we as a as a humanity will want to see more things live and in person, but we'll be a little bit hesitant to see like large rooms, right? Like stadiums are going to be too big. Anything like Aragon ballroom, Metro size is just too big, but that room that holds like 50 or 70 or a hundred is going to be like perfect. And that like people like you that know your shit, that know how to deliver and connect on a small scale. I think you're going to get new opportunities in a beautiful, beautiful way. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And I'd love to hear that. That's like, that's, I could count on my hand like all of my favorite artists in and around my You Me Them Everybody Orbit and, and like clearly you're on it, Daniel Knox is on it, uh, there's a guy in Washington DC, Baby Bribe on it, but like and there's a wonderful, wonderful garage rock band called Teen Mortgage, but there's not that many where I'm like, this could actually be good for you guys and women and like uh, Jessica Risker, etc. There but like I feel so intimately connected to your music and even though I know you as human beings I've I've rarely talked to any of you guys about the specific songs and I feel like you guys make such beautiful connections in a small room and that's not a knock on bands that like make it big and connect to a large audience it's, it's wonderful I think that this could be the future because if 
if the only way for musicians to make money is like teaching things online, those live shows are just going to, you're only doing it for the love of the doing of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's something that I hadn't kind of hadn't thought of. And I, I love to hear that. Yeah. That these massive like um, disease vector experiences of going to see the Rolling Stones or dead and company at soldier field, uh, like are now like kind of like off of everyone's plate. They're like, oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, could like um, I love, love, love the Pitchfork Music Festival. I I'm going to miss it this year if it doesn't happen. And that's the biggest RIP, I want to get. Yeah. You know, and that's eighteen thousand to twenty two thousand people. Lollapalooza is bigger than most American cities. It's a hundred over a hundred thousand people each day. That's insane. Like to envision that right now seems sort of offensive. Well, yeah, yeah, because everyone's everyone's trying to be safe and and trying to you know and and trying to you know stay healthy and all that. Yeah, so it seems so it seems a bit dark, but it's also like it speaks to the scale of what you know music business uh, has become. <laughs> of like, yeah, now there's a festival with a hundred thousand people, and those day passes are what two hundred and fifty bucks or something, um, and so. I, I think there there's a lot of horrible repercussions for the bottom falling out of an entire industry. And a lot of people are losing a lot and it's really scary and it's really destabilizing. Um, at the same time, like he said, these smaller, more intimate performances will become that much more cherished and preferable maybe. Um, and that also, you know, like you've got all these, you know, you've, you, you kind of, you have all these uh, exploiters and middlemen who are just like out of the fucking picture. I could pick up my banjo and play a, um, and play a set for people and broadcast it on the internet and, and people could watch it and love it. No booking agent is sitting in their house being like, Oh, I can like, I can book a, uh, like, Oh, Oh shit. Oh, there's like nothing. There's like no use for them right now. Um, and there's there's no use for these huge large scale things that make um people all of this money um so Hold on. Yeah, i want to make I it think- clear i'm not opposed to booking agents and all the money because i fucking love an arena show and i get it and it employs a shitload of people i've worked for a booking agent um i worked out it, it no longer exists so I'll tell you off mic, I, I fucking hated one of the three agents. I really, really liked the other one, and the other one I was completely indifferent to. And I feel like that is a pretty good um, a pretty good example of the entire music industry. Like, you're going to really hate one-third. One-third is like a bunch of whatever. And one-third, you're like, all right, they're pretty fine. But I don't think it's this inherently evil thing because so many artists, not you, but so many artists are very lazy and they don't want to do a lot of the work that comes with like book your own fucking life does that make sense no that does that that does and you know you inferred on what i was saying that i think that those things are evil and like abhorrent and that they shouldn't be i don't think that i think that there will be a lot of uh like kind of just like unnecessary um unnecessary positions and things like that just kind of like washed away in this tide it's like it's like the whole thing's just been dunked in water and we're going to pull it back out and and it'll just look um completely different i guess you know i did kind of say that with the tone of like oh these 
these vultures who will just die in the sky and fall out as they are justly do. Yeah. It's like, not- no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't mean that. Um, I don't mean to bring the fire and brimstone and like the, the implied judgment and all that stuff. I don't, it's really fucking horrible that people like are losing their livelihoods and they've, you know, carved out for themselves a life in the arts because there was such a big landscape and so much opportunity and, you know, it, 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 even for people who aren't playing music, uh, the, the arts and live performance is an industry you can work in and not feel like you're like part of the like kind of nine to five capitalist, um, regular working uh, kind of thing. You know, I, it, it offers an alternative pathway for a lot of people who otherwise wouldn't have that stability, wouldn't have these kind of careers. That's totally needed. And it is horrible that all like so many people's livelihoods are gone and compromised and, and greatly diminished. I think it's, I think the overall um, uh, flavor that leaves a distaste in my mouth is that it's all about the commodification of relationship. um, And that's just a slippery slope for even the best people. Oh, sure. um, Who who get involved in it. And it's like with everything, it's like, that's, that's kind of the downfall of business ethics in and of itself, where you have, you know, you have your, your morals and your personal ethics. And then in our system, you're allowed to access and exist within this different set of ethics called business, you know? So it's like, Hey, business is business. I wouldn't treat my brother this way, but I would treat my competition this way or treat my, treat my uh, partner this way, my business partner this way, because business is business. Sure. Um, So I think just like that shit bugs me. Understood. Speaking of business, two more things before we wrap this up. One, you're still sort of employed during the pandemic. I am. I am gratefully um, mildly employed. I put it um, with my, uh, with my day job, which is at a nonprofit that um, works with bicycles. So we it's called working bikes uh we collect bikes that are bound for the waste stream we redistribute them internationally by shipping uh containers of bikes uh, to partner organizations in africa and south america um, and the caribbean and then we operate a really big uh community bike shop and storefront uh in pilsen little village on western and 24th here in chicago um, so I am, I have a day a week at the shop where we're still taking in repairs, um, and we're still selling refurbished bikes. That's our main income for our mission. We're a self-funded nonprofit for the most part, which is very, we're very lucky. There's no like, um, uh, you know, funders or foundations to be kind of beholden to so we can operate pretty independently, but it means we need to be selling bikes and we're not selling as many bikes, but thankfully, uh, uh, J.B. Pritzker, governor of Illinois, a.k.a. Obese Fred Flintstone, a.k.a. Thick Daddy J.B., <laughs> he has determined that bike shops are are essential businesses. So we're taking in repairs. We're selling used bikes um, online and just scheduling pickups and drop-offs. If and memory kind of serves stuff, correct, so. at one point you were uh, riding around on a tricycle. Um, yeah, a tricycle, maybe, uh, it may have been as well. A, I think I've, I've in my wacky bike days for sure, probably rode a tricycle more commonly though, was a bicycle pulling a trailer, which that's is still it, something that's I it, used to. I remember, yeah, yes, yeah, it's yeah. that. It was that. Okay. Yeah. So that's still there and I'm still wrenching on bikes, uh, still doing my thing. Um, yeah, doing the, doing the Bill Withers as opposed to the John Prime. Got to keep the job. 
yeah. even though you're you're recording and putting out records. Um, and and yeah. this is the last question. It's really just a question about consent because you played on what I thought was going to be the last ever You, Me, Them, Everybody at the Hungry Brain in December of 2014. Um, the reason why I thought it was going to be the last one is because the brain reopened uh, a few years later, and I'm very, very grateful that it's reopened, and I still do the show there. But you sent, I had all my favorites perform on the last show at the brain, and you performed Lost at Sea. So if it's okay with you, that's how I kind of want to end this episode. It's Lost at Sea. Uh, by Al Scorch from December of 2014 at the Hungry Brain, and it it, um, it kind of fits the entire global pandemic, passing of John Prine, passing of Bill Withers, uh, not really giving up, but uh, acknowledging that things are a little dark right now. Is that okay with you? Oh, I'd love that. That'd be great, Brandon. Thank okay. you, man. Thanks for doing this. And ladies and gentlemen, here's Lost at Sea by Al Scorch. When you were lost out on the waters raging at the height of the storm I couldn't help but recall a time when we were both just baby boys And the stripes on the road struck by streak of light from the east Shimmered and changed in dawn's glimmering haze from yellow to pink My heart left my chest and the tears came down The same sun shone through the window I thought of a world without you around And I will not lie, my dear friend It was the lonesomest sound And then I picked up the phone And they told me that you had survived And I fell down on the floor And continued to Al Scorch, everybody. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, bro. <laughs> I'll see you soon, Al. <laughs>